Revelation chapter 14 this morning. With God's help, we will be considering verses 14 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like the son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who had who has power over fire, came out of the altar from the altar. And he called out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the children or gathered the clusters from the vines of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let us pray. May God add a blessing of the reading to it. Let's, Let's now pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray now that you would give to us ears to hear, hearts that believe, and minds that understand. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to rejoice that there will come a day when the the Son of Man will reap the harvest who are his elect, and also reap those, Lord, who are not his. We pray, God, that you will help us this morning to see the great comfort and also great warning that is provided for us here. Be glorified in Christ's name we pray. I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ and we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Saints, if I'm, um, if you see me talking a little weird, I've got this um, sore in my mouth that's causing me to have a good time, but um, be gracious with me. Uh, <clears throat> the last Lord's Day that we were together, we considered the blessing that is declared by God to those who die in the Lord. We learned that those who die in the Lord must first live in the Lord. And that is, they are to live lives in concert with their confession of faith in Christ. They are to live lives that correspond to faith. We must not only, saints, be those who confess our faith in Christ. We must be those who live obedient lives consistent with a true confession of Christ. For those who live in the Lord... There is a blessing, therefore, then, when you die in the Lord. You may say, then, along with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the course. And I pray that that would be uh, the confession that comes off of all of our tongues when our time of sojourning in this world has come to an end. For there will come a day, brothers and sisters, when... Our souls will leave our bodies and they will either be present with the Lord in comfort or they will be present with the Lord in despair. Only two options for our death. Our souls will either be in heaven or our souls will be in hell. Our confession states that scripture knows no other place except for these two. Prior to entering heaven, uh, we, we made this point last week, but I, but I think it's, it's worth repeating. Prior to entering heaven, we will be purged of our sin once and for all. We will be purified. And this purge takes place immediately after. That's important. Immediately after our souls separate from our bodies. There is a purging that takes place. There is a moment. It's not a lengthy period of time. We talked about that last week. One theologian said, I, I agree with the purga, that is the purging, purifying, just not the Tory. You guys know what the purgatory, I, that is the length of time. Rather, it is in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be like him. We, we shall be purged of all sin. What is more, God has promised that we shall rest from our earthly labors and that our de- deeds will follow us into heaven. Not as the key into heaven. 
They follow us from behind. Christ is the only entrance into heaven. But rather, they are rewards for those who faithfully endure. Uh, If one questions at any moment uh, whether or not deeds matter in our lives, whether or not good good deeds matter, they need only consider the rewards that Christ promises to the seven churches of Asia, Asia Minor, for their faithful endurance. If you're questioned whether or not the deeds even matter, uh, we're not going to be rewarded for anything. Just uh, read the promises that Christ gives to the seven churches. Of course, there is a reward for all of those who endure until the end, who are faithful until the end. These promises are for those who die in the Lord before the return of Christ. They're encouraged to know that their faith will not be in vain. As we move into now the remaining verses of this chapter, John is given a glimpse of the return of Christ. So then, with God's help, let us consider Christ. Here's the title if you're looking for for one. Christ who returns to reap the harvest. Christ who returns to reap the harvest. We will do so in three points this morning. Uh, a forewarning, our second point is going to be um, a little more heady. If, if you will, it's, it's going to be a little bit more. Um, well, we'll get there. Number one, the son of man harvesting the elect, the son of man harvesting the elect. This is verses 14 and 16, 14 through 16. Thus far in our study through the apocalypse of John, we have only been brought to the brink of Christ's return and glory. <clears throat> but now for the first time, we are actually seeing the coming, the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the first time, John sees the Son of Man victoriously arriving on clouds of majesty to reap the harvest from the world. The language of the coming of the Son of Man, it only belongs at the end of the age. In Daniel, which we'll get to in a moment, in Daniel, uh, and then even in here in Revelation, anytime that that arriving of the Son of Man, that coming of the Son of Man, it is always speaking about the end of the age. It's the final harvest of those who are on the earth. Now, this that we're seeing here, it is worldwide judgment that's being depicted. The events that are taking place here in this passage, they mark the end of the world as we know it. They mark the end of the world as we know it. John sees a white cloud. And sitting upon the white cloud is one, listen to this phrase, like the Son of Man. In earlier passages, as you know, because this is a symbolic book, whenever we see the word like, it's meant to describe something that is not exactly, but something like. Well, here in this verse, it means exactly what it says. Not like, this is the Son of Man. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. You will recall after the resurrection, this is important, our Lord ascended into heaven. And, and when he ascended into heaven, he, is, he ascended into a cloud. While the angels announced to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Uh, well, what was the way that the disciples watched him go into heaven? In clouds. What is the way in which the angels pronounce to the disciples that Christ will return? In clouds. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet foretold, with clouds of heaven there came, listen to this phrase, one like the Son of Man. What John is doing here is he's taking a direct quote from Daniel and giving it to us here in Revelation. This is the Son of Man. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of Man who appears Out of the white clouds is the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Incarnated Lord. That's important. He is um, the Son of Man in the flesh. He is the Word who assumed our flesh. This is Emmanuel, God with us, who lived, died, and rose in our place. This is the glorified humanity of Jesus Christ. That's important. As we move forward, that will be important. Christ returns... And he returns bearing this emblems of glory and triumph. Emblems of glory and triumph. Jesus returns to earth on a white cloud to symbolize glory and holiness. What is more, Christ returns wearing a crown upon his head. Now, the white cloud reflects the dazzling glory of God. When Moses went into the tabernacle during the Exodus, 
The glory cloud caused his face to shine with radiance. Some of you who come from my tradition might know that, that the Shekinah glory was on his face. When you think of the word white, it should always be translated in your minds as this, as bright. Bright like light. When you think of white, John um, intentionally uses white clouds. You ever gone out throughout the day when it's when it's maybe um, rained and the sun is out, but there are there are clouds out who are they're not rain clouds. They're just white clouds and they're brilliantly white. Imagine our Lord will be riding on those clouds one day in return in glory. Christ returns with the brilliance of the brightest light, the brilliance of the brightest light. Christ is the light of the world. And when he returns, he will return in the brilliance of his glory And it will be so bright that it will cast a shadow upon the sun. Christ dwells in unapproachable light. And that unapproachable light will come to earth one day and bring judgment and salvation. The Lord Jesus wears a crown atop his head. It is a crown. Not only for the king. But this crown in Greek is meant to communicate a wreath. A wreath given to one who is victorious. Much like when an Olympian, yeah, you might think of the, um, the Greeks, uh, back in the day when they, they had this wreath upon their head. Imagine a golden wreath. The golden wreath comes from those who were, um, Olympi- Olympians, uh, victorious Olympians. Those who had won the gold medal as it were. They would receive a golden wreath for their victory. Christ returns not only as King, but as conquering, victorious king. Robert Mounts, the golden wreath designates the Messiah as one who has conquered and thereby won the right to act in judgment on the earth. Our Lord returns in order to judge the living and the dead, to separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff. This is depicted by the sickle. A sickle is is that kind of sword-looking thing that has a moon-shaped sword. It's not... uh, you, you, you sometimes will see the grim reaper holding, right? That's where they get this phrase from, this, the grim reaper. Christ comes to reap, but they only see it as grim. Here, it's not just grim, it's also glorious. The, the, the angel who is the, the grim reaper comes from this angel of the second portion who will come to reap the dead, uh, the wicked. Christ here comes as the reaper of the harvest, the reaper of the good. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 30, At harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in the bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The final judgment is described here as a double harvest, which believers in Christ will be separated unto himself for salvation, final salvation and entrance into glory to receive their eternal reward. While those who have rejected Christ will be judged with an eternal punishment. This appears to be what is being described here as John receives this vision of two angels. With the call of the first angel, the Son of Man gathers the harvest of the elect, those who have placed their faith in Christ, those whom he has foreloved and foreknown. With the call of the second angel, the Son of Man gathers the harvest of the wicked. Saints, don't lose that throughout the sermon of this, okay? Throughout this text, that's the main point. This is a symbolic book. What do these things symbolize? Very plainly, if you want to say, what is verses 14 through 20? Christ will return to reap the harvest of his elect. Christ will return to bring all things to an end by also judging the wicked. Reaps the elect, judges the wicked, brings all things to an end. What, what, what does verses 14 to 20 mean? That's what it means. There's an announcement from an angel. Put your sickle and reap. Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come. Because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. This comes precisely from the book of Joel. Where the prophet foretells the restoration of the kingdom and the judgment of the nations. Joel chapter 3. I will gather the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel. Whom they have scattered among the nations. And they have divided up my land. Put in the sickle, Joel three thirteen, for the earth it, for the harvest is ripe. 
Come, tread the wine presses full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Joel speaking about the final day of judgment. The harvesting of the elect and the judgment of the wicked. The Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry alluded to this text in the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13. On that day, the judgment day, the sons of the kingdom shall be gathered by his angels called reapers into the kingdom of God, where they will shine forth, Jesus says, as the sun. While the sons of the evil one shall also be gathered and they will be thrown into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is what is being displayed here at the final end of the age. Christ is reaping and gathering the elect unto himself to glory, to the final day of separating the sheep and the goats. This is, listen to this word, this is the climax or completion of the ongoing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the climax or the completion of the ongoing work of Jesus Christ. Some might say, I thought the work of Christ was complete. Yes. In one sense, the work of Christ is absolutely complete. The work of Christ, in terms of justification, through his life, death, and resurrection, it is complete. But in terms of his ongoing work, bringing many sons to glory, sanctifying us, conforming us, and finally coming to judge the living and the dead, that is ongoing, and it also is before us. That is the ongoing work of Christ. When Christ said on the earth, the Son of Man will come like a thief in the night, with angels separating righteous and wicked, repaying according to his deeds, at an unexpected hour, this is the final earthly work of Christ. He returns to, to earth to save and to judge. It's the final of the ongoing work of Christ. Here in the text, Christ comes and reaps the harvest of the godly. The godly are compared to wheat. They, they are full. They are ripe. And they are used for grain when the harvest is ready. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist contrasted wheat of the godly with the chaff of the ungodly. And here's the point. The point is that there is a vast difference between those who are saved and those who are condemned before the final harvest. Which one are you, saints? Are you of the good wheat or are you of the chaff? Well, what's the main difference? How do you know whether or not you are wheat or chaff? How do you know that you are in Christ or not in Christ? Primarily by faith, hope and love. That's how you know. Faith in Christ and trust in his word, evidenced by obedience. That's how you know you're in Christ. Those who who belong to God hear the word of the Son, believe the word of the Son, and obey the word of the Son because they have been graced to love the Son. You believe, you hope in, you trust and you obey because you love the Son. And this love has been granted to you. You don't love on your own volition. You don't love based upon your own ability to love. You have no ability to love apart from Christ. The kingdom of God is like a farmer who went out to sow a seed, the word of God. By grace, you and I have been given ears and and hearts and minds to to hear and to understand and to love and to, to believe the word of Christ. God has done this in you. If you are hearing the word of God today and loving God's word and and leaning into God's word and wanting to obey God's word and wanting to be one of those who will be reaped in the final day by Christ, then praise be to God. There is an evidence there that you belong to him. But if you're hearing this word and say, I have no concern for this word, I can't wait until he's done, then maybe it is because you do not belong to him. I know these things already. Brothers and sisters, I know these things already too, and I preach them every Lord's Day. You may be thinking, I've heard this already. Well, I'm the one who has to say it again. Say what you already know. And yet, every Lord's Day, our hearts should be inflamed once more to say yes and amen. Don't stop saying what I already know. And it should we should never sit there and say, only I'm only going my ears are only going to perk up. My antennas will only go up when I've heard things that I don't already know. Well, dear God. Aren't you special? 
You only perk up when you hear things you don't know. No, saints. Our hearts should constantly be be beating. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for that truth. Thank you that I am one of yours. Thank you that I do have faith in you. Thank you that when the word of God does go forth, I am able to understand things that I know that before, formerly, I was not able to understand. Thank you, God, that my hope in you is growing. Thank you, God, that my love for you is growing. Thank you that I can see evidences of you working in my life, making me more like you. These are grace. These are graces that God gives to you. These are graces that God gives to you. It's the fruit of God being produced by the Spirit of God within you. It's not so for the unbeliever. The unbeliever may hear these things again and again and again. The unbeliever may hear these things and you may think that you did, a, you did a very good job at articulating these things. And yet they still don't get it. And you want to shake them. How do you not get this? How do you not understand this? It's because they do not belong to him. They are, at this present moment, they are chaff. At this present moment, they are, they are goats. It is a grace that God has given to you and I to know him. They may hear the word of God. And they may have joy for a short, short moment, but it's short-lived. They may hear the word of God, but when trouble comes, because they have a weak foundation, they reject God's word. They may hear the word of God, and just for a moment, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word of God, and they are unfruitful. They may have the word scattered to them, but they refuse to believe. Well, saints, which one are you? Which one are you? Do you have faith in God and in his word? Or do you have a living hope because of the future That God has promised to those who are in Him. Is your faith in Him firm and unshakable? Even at times when it's shook? Do you love God? Is this faith, hope, and love evidenced in your daily life? We talked about this last week. That those who die in the Lord must first say that they live in the Lord. Can that be said of you? The angel indicates that the wheat is ready. The wheat is ripe. That all those whom God has determined to save are, have come to saving faith. The time is now. Today, dear ones, here and abroad, the gospel is going forth across the world. Missionaries are faithful in proclamation, in proclamation of the gospel. In lands where the gospel has not been heard. Evangelists are standing on street corners in front of abortion clinics, at local rescue missions, in casual conversations at work, at family gatherings, which will come up in a few weeks, won't they? We strike up conversations at the grocery store when we're walking our dogs. The Great Commission is going out into all the world. And we, by God's help and grace, are making disciples of all nations, advancing the kingdom of God, which will one day finally, after all of those efforts, be accomplished. There will be no more gospel preached. There will be no one else coming to Christ. The angels will pronounce, the wheat is ready. It's time to harvest. All of those whom God has determined to save will be saved. Will you be among them? We are called to advance the kingdom of God. To help saints mature in Christ. Until they are finally united to Christ. Until Christ returns, we we are laborers in that harvest field. For Christ, we are His hands and His feet. Just as the labor of agriculture is not an easy task, so the labor of preparing the harvest of the Lord on that final day, it's not an easy task. You know this, don't you? You know that sharing and and even having the anxiety of getting ready to share the gospel with your family members in a few weeks, it builds in you. The anticipation it builds in you. And even the time when you labor to, to have those good, fruitful conversations, it can be laboring. You just want them to automatically be reformed like you are. But you know that takes work, don't you? You know that takes labor. You know that takes a lot of conversations. You know that it takes a lot of questions being asked to you. And it seems like the more, it seems like when you answer a good question, they've got another one that almost discounts the question that you just answered. It's labor. It's intense. The work of plowing and planting as a witness can be taxing. It can be difficult. It can even at times be disappointing. But we persevere because we love God. 
because our hearts have been united to him. Therefore, even when our faith is tested, it's not destroyed. Even though our hope is pressed, it's not crushed. Even tough times, when love is questioned, is reassured when it looks to the cross. No, I know he loves me. Christ is coming to reap a harvest. So let us not grow weary as we along as we long and wait for that day. Be faithful in prayer, steadfast in our faith, expecting in hope, abounding in love. Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing well, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Saints, this is meant for our encouragement. Christ will one day gather us together. Christ will one day gather us into glory. The church who first heard this was suffering opposition and persecution. By God's grace, they were being shown that there's a purpose for all of this. There's a reason for all of this. That all of their prayer, their faith, and their hope, and their love was not in vain. There will come a time and a day established by God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When the resurrected Lord would return on clouds of glory and draw all of his elect to himself. None shall be lost. We learned before, 144,000 have been gathered, 144,000 are still standing. None who belong to him shall be lost, none forgotten, and none disappointed. The Son of Man will return in glory and victory to gather all of his elect. Let me just ask in closing this point, are you looking forward to that day? Is there any bit of you that goes, I don't know. I'm a little worried. I'm not sure. Do you have eager, eager expectation to meet the Son of Man when he comes riding on clouds of glory? Are you faithful in your witness of word and deed? How many do we know that are not? Not eager, not ready, not looking. Pray for them. Christ is said to return when the harvest is ripe. Christ calls us to pray. Pray for workers to be sent out into the harvest field because the harvest is plentiful. There's many. But the workers are so few. When you go this coming week's To be with your family, ask yourself when you are with him, am I one of his workers? Here I am in this field. Here I am with my family of unbelievers. Could I be used? Or dear God, help me to be used right now as a witness to them for your glory. So that it could be said of me that I participated as a laborer in your harvest field to prepare for your coming. Second point, interrogating the text. This point will be, I'll slow down on this point. This point, though, I think is important for us to consider. Let's let's look to it. A friend, uh, point is interrogating the text. A friend, I described to him what, what my process of study is. And he said to me, I like that. It's called interrogating the text. That is when we ask questions of the text and trust that the author, God himself, will guide us to the answers of the text. Many questions came up for me here in in this particular text. We have dealt with the main point of this sermon, right? Or the main point of this passage. Christ will return to reap the elect. Christ will also return to judge the wicked. But there are some questions in between. Look at verse 15. Oh, it's him. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. That's Christ. Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, because the harvest is ripe. The harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, I don't know if you're seeing the same questions that I'm seeing. But maybe through this verse, or through this point, you might see them. Here, Here's the first question that came up for me. Who is this angel? John says... This is another angel. 
This angel is among three other angels that have already come. In verses 6 through 9, John uses the same phrase, another angel. In John chapter 14, then, there are a total of six angels. So who is this angel? He's not identified, but he is most likely one of the seven angels who are said to serve before the temple of God that are referred to as archangels or high raking angels. You have heard, all of us have heard of Michael, the what? The archangel or Gabriel, the archangel. Theologians from extra biblical sources name other angels such as Raphael, Uriel, Jophiel, Kamiel, and Barachiel, each one ending with L of God, right? Whether or not these five uh, angels are real names is uncertain. But there are definitely, most likely, see how I said that? Definitely, most likely. There are definitely, most likely, seven angels who serve before the throne of God. Now, how many angels are there? Anyone want to take a guess how many angels there are in God's creation? I would wager, from our vantage point, an uncountable number, an unknowable number from our vantage point. From God's vantage point, he knows all the angels. God knows every single one of them by name. knows how many exactly there are. Let me say to you a few things. Angels are real. Angels are fighting back demonic forces. Angels have been charged to protect... Listen to this. Angels have been charged to protect the saints. And serve the purposes of God. As I said in February, one of our brothers will come and give more on, on this particular topic. What information do we have that implies this particular angel is a high-ranking angel? How do we know this is a high-ranking angel who serves before the throne of God? Well, where is he coming out of? Look at your verse, verse 15. Where is he coming out of? Scriptures say that he is coming out of the temple. That is, he is coming out of the very presence of God. The holy place, if you like. Angels giving a command to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you caught that, but I did. Here's the command. Put in your sickle and reap. Now, for me, that immediately caused concern. Now, hold on a second. The angels are subordinate to God the Son. God the Son is not subordinate to the angels. Therefore, the angels don't have the right to command God the Son. God the Son commands the angels. So, what gives? What's happening here? The angel is addressing who? The eternal son? Um, the word became flesh? Or the word? Uh, well, he's actually addressing the incarnate word. He's addressing Christ in his humanity. He's addressing the glorified Christ. That's an important point to make. This is why we labored earlier to emphasize this is the resurrected Christ. The son of man coming on clouds is the resurrected glorified Christ. He is the, the, the word made flesh. He's the flesh that, that he's the, the humanity of Christ being described here. The angel is therefore receiving revelation from the father. Now, here's one point receiving revelation from the father. Follow me from the throne of heaven. And he is giving it to the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who then goes forth just as he did on the earth to complete his final work of judgment. How do I make that point? In the earthly ministry of Christ, the Lord Jesus said that he did nothing apart from the will of the Father. That he spoke only what the Father gave him to speak. That he only went where the Father sent him to go. That he only healed those whom the Father gave him to heal. That he only, again, did what the Father told him to do. Listen to this. And only knew what the Father gave him to know in his earthly ministry according to his humanity. We'll get to this next point in a moment. This is known as inseparable operations. Inseparable operations. That is this. The Son does nothing apart from the Father. The Spirit does nothing apart from the Father and the Son, so on and so forth. They, they, the, when the Trinity acts, it acts as He acts as one, not inseparably of the persons. Does that make sense? 
So then the argument could be made that the, the angel is not commanding the incarnate Lord, Jesus Christ, on the basis of any authority that he has over Christ. He's not commanding him because he has authority over him, but rather he's communicating to the incarnated Christ instructions from the Father, which is put in your sickle and reap for the hour has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. I'm okay with that. Okay? I'm okay with the angels communicating something to the, to the son. But I think there's a better answer there, which we'll discuss in a moment. Alright, so if you stuck, if you stayed with that, yeah, I'm okay with that. But I think it brings up another question. The third one. It appears as though the angel is informing Christ or giving Christ information that he did not already know. The hour to reap has come. Because the harvest is ripe. Did Jesus already know the hour had come? Did Jesus already know that the, the earth was ripe, that it was time to reap? It seems like the angel is telling him something that he didn't already know. Well, one might immediately recall Matthew 24. But of that day, that final day, the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father alone. Repeated in Mark chapter 13. I'm going to make this short, okay? Uh, as being the Son, being one with the Father, all that the Father knows, the Son knows in His divinity. All that the Father knows, the Son knows. There is no information that the Father knows that the Son does not know. The persons of the Trinity do not have separate minds or separate knowledge. If one wants to be a biblicist, they might say, but it says Son. The Son doesn't know. Let, let me just say to you, you're going to have way more issues explaining how there are just some things that one person of God, the Godhead knows, and some things that the one another person of the Godhead does not know. You're going to have a lot of problems with that. Um, I think first and foremost, simplicity. According to his divinity, the Son, who is the intellect of the Father, expressed in word, knows all things. He is all-knowing. According to his humanity, here's the answer, ready? According to his humanity, there are things that have not been given to him to know, that's important, and also given to him to reveal. Two things. According to his humanity, there are things that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, has not been given to know, and also things that he's not been given to reveal. Those two things. Pastor Isaiah did a sermon on this some time ago. Was it given, here's the question, was it given to Christ to have innate knowledge about all things without exception? In his humanity, does Christ know every single thing that is to be known without exception? No, he does not. Plenty of things that the humanity of Christ did not know. Why? Because they were not necessary for him to know. They were not pertinent to his earthly ministry and also to his um, to his work in the ministry. That is, to accomplish salvation. Well, what did Christ not know? Um, Noah will like this. And so will Moses. Did Christ know how to shoot a jumper? No. He didn't need to know how to shoot a jumper. Uh, did Christ, if, if Isaac were here, he would like this. Did Christ know how to play the drums? We're going to say no. He did not need to know how to play the drums in order to be God incarnate. Right? I'm sure if he applied himself, could he? I'm sure he'd be the best drummer. He'd be better than um, Buddy Rich. He'd be the best drummer who ever lived. Right? Did Christ know how to knit a sweater? See, we start to get to the things in the humanity of Christ that he did not know. Nor did he need to know. If he did not know how to knit a sweater, would he still be our Savior? Well, yes. Why? Because it was his mission to live according to the law of God, to die in our place as lawbreakers, and to rise from the dead for our justification. That's what Christ needed to do. All of those other things were unnecessary for him to know or do. Right? There were also things... Here's the other part now. There were also things that Christ knew but were not given to him to reveal. Given to him, not given to him, I should say, to reveal, but things that he knew. He only spoke what the Father gave him to speak and only revealed what the Father gave him to reveal. This is why he can say he does not know the hour or the day. Is he lying? No. 
He's not, he does not know in the, in, in the sense that it's not been given to him to reveal. I'll prove it to you in a moment. Not because he does not know the hour, but it's not a part of his earthly ministry. It's not a part of the ministry of Christ in his humanity to tell people, um, what's today's date? Uh, November 13, 2022, I'll come back. It's not been given him to reveal that to us. Imagine, what would you do with that information? If you knew the day and the hour and the time, what would you, what would you do? What, what, I know what I would do with that information. What would you and I do with that information? It's not a part of his work of redemption to reveal such dates and times. After the resurrection, the Lord appeared to his disciples. They wanted to know, would this now be the time when he would restore the kingdom? Here's what he says. It's not for you to know. The epochs or the periods of time appointed, um, which the father has set by his own authority. It's not for you to know. He didn't say, I don't know. He says, it's not for you to know. It's not been given for me to reveal, Christ would say. Our Lord does not say he does not know, but such information has not been given to him to reveal. So does the son know the hour and the day of his return? According to his divinity, yes, of course he does. According to his humanity, yes, but it's not been given to him to reveal. It's not pertinent to his work. So divinity, yes, humanity, yes, but it's not been given to him to reveal. Pastor Isaiah informed me of this quote. We had this long talk about this, by the way, from Hilary of Portiers, who says, essentially, here's, here's, here's what he says. How could it be that Christ knows the high things about the Father, but the low things, such as date and times, he don't know. He doesn't know. How could it be that, that Christ knows the high things about the Father that he reveals to us, but low things, such as dates and times? Imagine, in terms of their value, what's more valuable, the Father and the Spirit whom Christ reveals to us, or lower things, such as dates and times? Christ would know these high things, but doesn't know this lower thing? Of course he does. He knows the Father. He's received the beatific vision. He reveals to us heavenly things only as one who has seen heavenly things. He reveals to us the Trinity. He doesn't know lesser things like the hour and the time when the end will come. Of course he does. But it's not been given to him to reveal. This is the orthodox stance on the knowing of Christ. Meaning if you go throughout church history, this is what all of the orthodox say. Finally, I, so if you say, well, I don't like your point, go argue with them, because I got it from them. Um, I would argue that this angel is not commanding Christ. Here's the final point. But he is announcing what Christ already knows. He is the herald, as it were, who announces for the king that which has been set by the king, therefore that which the king already knows. So that point earlier of he's communicating information from the father Yes, that could be in several operations, but I believe also, and I think a better point, is that he's only announcing for the king what the king has already known, the time of the day which the king has set. I would say it's, it's an announcement. At uh, 1225, give or take, we will make an announcement to do what? Come and pray. You know the time. You know what we're meeting. We're still going to announce it, even though you already know. So it is with the angel who pronounces the hour to come to reap the harvest. I hope that those questions, you just got insight into my, my time of study. <laughs> I hope that that's helpful for you, but I hope the answers more so are helpful for you. That when someone says, how could he be God if he does not know? It's one of the arguments that, that Muslims use against Christians for, for Christ not being divine. He says he doesn't know. How do you explain him being divine if he does not know? Well, hopefully now you know why he says what he doesn't know. And if they say, that's not what he said, then say, well, you're being a biblicist right now. This is what he means. Third and finally, don't miss the point. Christ is returning to reap the harvest. Christ is returning to, to reap the harvest. Third, uh, third and final point, the wine press of wrath. This is verses 17 through 20. Jeez, John <clears throat> sees yet again another angel. Who proceeds from the temple. One of the seven we, we would assume. The imagery of the harvest is repeated in almost identical terms as verses 15 through 16. And once again, Joel is alluded to here. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in. Listen to this. Tread. For the wine press is full. Those who are the elect of God have been harvested. And now those who are left. 
they are the grapes that will be crushed under the wrath of God. We've heard this in old show or, or book, The Grapes of Wrath. This is exactly what it is. Revelation 8, there's an angel who is positioned near a golden altar that obtains fire from the altar to throw down to the earth in judgment. Notice this. Christ himself does not harvest the ungodly for judgment. It's done by angels. The angel goes. The angel grabs the sickle. Christ doesn't do it. Richard Phillips says, this may reflect that while Jesus is immediately involved in the salvation of his people, the judgment of the rebellious under while under his authority does not involve such contact. He's, he's not contact in, in contact with that, per se. But he sins on his authority, judgment. It is Christ's own hand that saves people, but his command suffices for the judgment of the rebels. It means he sends his angels to judge. We will judge, men and angels, won't we? In other words, Christ is actively involved in bringing his people into the kingdom. But for the wicked, Christ gives the command to carry out judgment upon them. They swing the sickle. Judgment is executed. It's a gnarly knife if you've ever seen a sickle. Judgment is executed. The angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. There's no way to make this flowery. There's no way around this, saints. Sin must be paid for in the holy court of God's almighty justice. If you've not trusted in Christ, you will be among the wicked that are pressed in that wine press. The wine press, you know, you've seen it built a brick. They, they bring, they pour the, the grapes in. And those who are making wine simply begin to trample. Stop. You've seen them. Yeah, you've seen them probably in Italy or things like that, where they're stomping on the grapes and and it is red up to their ankles, red up to their knees from all of the stomping that they are doing. John is describing that kind of symbolism as what will happen to the wicked on the day of judgment. They will be crushed under the wrath of God. They'll be crushed under the judgment of God. Isaiah 63, who is this who comes from Edom? With garments glowing colors of Basra. This is one who is majestic in his apparel. Marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speaks in righteousness. Mighty to save. The question is why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads the winepress. We would say well because he's drenched in the blood of Christ. Well not so actually. The Holy One says. I have trodden. The truck alone, the wine truck alone, and the peoples, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I trod in my anger and trampled them with my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained and stained all my raiment. Why is he drenched in red? Not because of his blood, because of the blood of the wicked. He is trampled on them. He has judged them in fierce judgment that they deserve because of their sin. John relates, this was done outside of the city, which indicates the rejection um, involved in God's judgment. God rejects these people. They are outside of his holy city. The The ungodly are outside of the holy city, outside of the kingdom. Where was Christ crucified? By wicked men. They took him outside of the city that he does not belong it was there that he gave himself to be trodden in the winepress of God. It pleased the Lord to crush him. He bore our sins that we might be clothed in his righteousness. And now Christ returns. Judgment comes to the same place. Outside of, of the city of God. There the rejectors of the grace that flows from the cross suffer the wrath of God. That they have chosen for themselves. By reason, impotence, and penitence, I should say, and ingratitude. This should be no shock or alarm for us. It should be sad for us, for them. But it's the good news that the angel pronounces. The angel who flies mid-heaven is pronouncing this as good news. It's devastating for us. You should automatically right now know someone 
that someone is a rejecter of God. And I don't see, unless God miraculously intervenes, I don't see any hope for them right now. Save Christ, miraculously saving them. They will be suffering under the stomping judgment of God. What's sad for us? But it is the good news of the gospel. It's the due punishment for sin. This scene is a reminder to all of us of just how terrible sin is. Sin is terrible. They're not only judged because of offenses they've made to God, but also judged because of a lack of regret that they have in their offense against God. Not just because they've offended God, because they have no regret over it either. Sin has been the adultery that has broken families. Sin has been the tip of the spear and the point of the bullet that has murdered countless. Sin has been the poison at the end of the needle that has aborted countless babies. It's been the green eye of greed. The deceitful tongue of dishonesty. The evil that took the hammer and the nail and drove it into the hands that formed the world out of nothing. The hands that formed man from the dust of the earth. There's nothing in the sight of God as wicked as sin. Unless our sins are redeemed by the blood of Christ, they must be trodden like grapes of wrath under the winepress of God's judgment. We must receive the reality of this passage for what it is. Unless we repent and judge and, and trust in Christ, we will suffer under his judgment. In verse 20, the blood of the judgment is so great that it reaches the bridle of the horse. That's the very mouth. There's so much blood that it reaches to the horse's bridle, its mouth, for 200 miles. 200 miles of, of, of blood that high. It's hyperbolic. It's exaggerated language. But it's meant to convey this. The day of judgment will not be enjoyed by the wicked. It will not be a joyful time. They will, there will be no partying in, he, in hell. No celebrating in hell. There will only be suffering and punishment and death. Saints, we often like to make hard things like this flowery at the end, don't we? No. We will not do that today. I think it's important that at the end of this, we wrestle with the weight of this passage. I think it's important that at the end of this, we wrestle with just how sad it will be for the wicked. And yes, right, it, you rightfully rejoice because you are not one of the wicked. But will you be faithful in showing other beggars where they can find bread? I pray to God that we will. Let us pray.